0: You are listening to The Pregnancy Podcast with Vanessa Martin. Hello, thank you for tuning into The Pregnancy Podcast. This week, we are talking about interventions. This episode originally aired just a couple months into the podcast, and this is a really good introductory episode into all of the different types of interventions and an overview of the pros and cons of each. Really looking at these interventions involved a lot of research. And I hope that this episode helps you figure out what you may want to include in your birth and maybe some things that you want to avoid. Since this originally aired, I have done in-depth episodes that involved a ton of more research on each intervention. And I'm going to link up to all of those episodes in the show notes. So you can find everything at pregnancypodcast.com forward slash episode 80. This episode is a rebroadcast and there is not going to be a QA this week as I am focusing on some things behind the scenes. In today's episode, we are talking about interventions. This is a critical podcast as you get ready for birth and regardless of what type of birth you're planning or where you are planning to have your baby. This episode is going to be jam-packed with information to help you decide what you do and do not want during your birth. Some of these procedures might sound a little bit scary, but the point of this podcast is not to scare you, but really to provoke you to do your due diligence and know what you're getting into anytime you opt into an intervention. You will hear me talk over and over about making informed decisions, and this is a really big part of that. Let's start with defining what an intervention is. So an intervention is any procedure performed by a care provider, usually a doctor or midwife, to assist in the delivery of the baby. And interventions include administering IV fluids, fetal monitoring, an epidural, assisted delivery, which would be using forceps or a vent house suction cup, uh, episiotomy, induction, augmentation, and cesarean. In general, if you have one intervention, it will increase your chances of having another, and this can sometimes lead to a snowball effect or a cascade of interventions. By learning what each procedure entails and when and why it's performed, you'll be much better able to make sound decisions as to whether or not you really need or want something. We are really just scratching the surface of these procedures and no doubt we will be dedicating some episodes in the future to really get into a lot more detail. Let me first say that modern medicine is amazing. There is no doubt that lives of both mothers and babies have been saved by interventions. The issue is that there is a trend of these interventions increasing and used when they are not necessary. All interventions carry some risks with them. Remember, it's your job to make informed decisions based on what is best for you and your baby. And just because something is suggested by a care provider does not mean that it is mandatory. And ultimately, you have the final say. So the first intervention that you may encounter is a saline lock. So many hospitals require a saline lock, or it's sometimes called a hep lock. And it's an IV catheter that is put in the top of your hand. So with a hep lock in, you aren't necessarily hooked up to an IV, but your care provider has easy access in the event that you need something injected into your vein later. So there are several reasons why an IV might be used in labor and and birth. And the most common reason is that they may want to put you on an IV to keep you hydrated. So staying hydrated during labor sounds really great on the surface, but this can also cause edema, which is swelling due to excess fluids in your body. IV fluids can also cause your baby to maintain a higher fluid level at birth, which leads to more excess fluid loss after birth. So the issue with this is that your doctor may see it as weight loss due to not eating enough. Often this results in a fear that your baby is not getting enough nutrition and formula can be started when it's not necessary. There has been some push to use the 24 hour weight rather than the weight at birth as the baseline weight when following how much your infant is weighing over time. But this hasn't gained major traction in the medical community yet. So just something to keep in mind if you are receiving IV fluids during labor. Hospitals tend to discourage drinking and eating during labor, and this is a practice that is not in use at most birth centers. Most birth centers or with a home delivery will suggest that you do eat and drink during your labor. Labor is a marathon and you need to stay hydrated. So if you want to avoid IV fluids, make sure that you're not dehydrated and drink water. If for whatever reason, that's not an option. You can also try eating lots of ice chips and that may help. A saline lock can also be used if you're having an induction or an epidural anesthesia. So if you do receive an IV, you may want to request an IV pole that has wheels so that you can walk around during labor and still maintain some mobility. The next really common intervention is electronic fetal monitoring, and that's used throughout labor to evaluate the contractions and the baby's response to them. Historically, listening to a baby's heartbeat was used to assess how the baby is tolerating labor. So there are three types of monitors. There are external monitors, and those have two belts that use ultrasound and a pressure transducer. Telemetry units allow the woman more movement so you're not tethered close to a machine and you have a lot more mobility. If for some reason neither of those are taking very accurate measurements, internal monitors can also be used. In general, low-risk women can be monitored intermittently, while if you are high-risk, you may be monitored nonstop. So there are times when continuous monitoring is suggested in low-risk women, and that would be if your labor is induced or augmented with Pitocin or if you have an epidural. And if your baby's heart rate changes or you or your baby have a health problem, you may also be monitored continuously. Continuous monitoring has not proven to improve birth outcomes for healthy women that are having normal labor. Instead, it has proven to increase the rate of cesareans, and it generally will affect your ability to move around and change positions as you need to during labor. You can definitely request periodic monitoring, and that's usually done about once every 30 minutes during active labor. And if that's not an option, you can also take Talk to your care provider about being upright, like in a chair or on a birthing ball when you're being monitored, as opposed to just laying on your back in a bed. And you can also ask for a mobile monitoring unit so that you can continue to walk, go to the bathroom, stretch, whatever you need to do to get through your labor. And if you are hooked up to a monitor, try not to be too distracted by it. You can always turn the monitor away from you and lower the sound on it. And you might also want to gently remind your support person to keep their focus on you and not the machine. An induction is an artificial way to start labor. I really, really encourage you to wait until your baby is ready to go into labor. It's not uncommon for women to go a week or two past their due date, and the last couple weeks of gestation are critical for lung development. The best science available shows us that a protein is produced in the lungs of the fetus, which signals your body to go into labor. So you really don't want to induce before your baby is 100% ready, there are some various medical reasons that labor is induced. However, the number of inductions, especially in the U.S., is on the rise. And this is really due to recent trends of inducing for non medical reasons. Many women are induced because their health care provider suspects that the baby is large. I hear this all the time, but studies show that the birth of a big baby is not affected by inducing labor versus just letting labor begin on its own. So with that being said, if you do decide to move forward with an induction, there are several ways that this can be done. One of the most common procedures is membrane stripping or sweeping. So this is done by your care provider and they use their finger to separate your cervix from the tissue around the baby's head. Another method is rupturing of the membranes using a sterile hooked instrument. This is often done to speed up labor, though most studies show that this really is not true for most women. And the majority of women don't have their water break until they are dilated closer to 10 centimeters. The hook instrument that they use is really similar to a long crochet hook, and they scratch the bag until it ruptures. Some risks associated with this can include increased risk of infection, lack of cushion for the baby's head, increased intervention, and some limited mobility. Labor can also be induced by cervical ripening. And that's performed by either inserting a prostaglandin gel or a balloon-like catheter. So a prostaglandin is a hormone-like substance that can have side effects like making you feel feverish, nauseous, be sick, or give you diarrhea and can also make your vagina sore. The last way that labor is induced is by administering pitocin. And pitocin is a synthetic form of oxytocin, which is the hormone that causes your uterus to contract. And this is given through an IV drip in steadily increasing amounts to stimulate contractions. As with any prescription drug, there is a long list of side effects associated with pitocin. So I really urge you to check them out. There are a ton of ways to try and induce labor with non medical interventions. This can include acupuncture, homeopathy, herbs, sexual intercourse, nipple stimulation. Unless there is a clear medical reason for induction, it is far less complicated and far more healthy for you and your baby to let labor start on its own. So I really urge you to just try and be patient when you are at the end of your pregnancy. Labor really is a team effort and will go the smoothest if both mom and baby are working in harmony. So the best way to do this is to really just wait. If a medical concern does arise, make sure that you communicate with your care provider about why you should induce and know all of the benefits and the risks of each of the labor induction methods that are offered to you. An epidural isn't usually on the list of birth interventions, but I felt like it was appropriate to include it since we're talking about anything that artificially impacts labor an epidural delivers continuous pain relief to the lower part of your body and allows you to remain fully conscious. So it decreases the sensation, but it doesn't result in a complete lack of feeling. With an epidural, medication is delivered through a catheter, which is a really thin, flexible hollow tube that's inserted into your back. An epidural is the most commonly used method of pain relief for labor in the United States. And in the past, many practitioners wanted you to wait until you were in active labor before starting an epidural due to concern that it would slow down contractions. But today generally they will just give it to you as soon as you ask for it. Let's start with the pros. It's pretty effective in relieving pain, and the anesthesiologist can control the effects by adjusting the type, amount, and strength of the medication. Because your pain is minimized, you can rest if you want, and some women can even sleep earlier on as your cervix is dilating. And as a result, you might have a little bit more energy when it comes time to push. For the cons, depending on the type and amount of medication that you're getting, you may lose some sensation in your legs and be unable to stand. In early labor, smaller amount of anesthetic is needed to just kind of maybe make you comfortable and take the edge off. And this might allow you to have a normal strength and sensation in your legs so you can still move around without too much difficulty. And this is sometimes called a walking epidural. So either way, this does require that you have an IV. You're going to have frequent blood pressure monitoring and continuous fetal monitoring. And an epidural often makes the pushing stage of labor a little bit longer just because you are going to have some decreased sensation. Epidurals also make it more likely that you'll have a vacuum extraction or forceps delivery, which we'll talk about in a minute. And there are side effects as with any prescription medication. You also may need to have a catheter inserted. Now that you have heard some of the pros and cons of an epidural, you should know that if you have one, you can still definitely have a birth without any other interventions. An episiotomy is a procedure performed during the pushing stage of labor and a Cut is made to widen your vagina and assist with the delivery of your baby. So, this is a surgical cut to the perineum and the muscle beneath it in between your vagina and your anus. And essentially, it can speed up the amount of time that it takes for your baby to be able to come out. For years, an episiotomy was thought to help preserve the muscular and connective tissue and help support the pelvic floor. And it was also thought to help prevent more extensive vaginal tearing during childbirth and thought to heal better than a natural tear. But today's research really suggests that routine episiotomies do not prevent these problems at all. Recovery can be uncomfortable and sometimes the surgical incision is more extensive than a natural chair would have been. You are also going to have a risk of infection. So for some women, an episiotomy also causes pain during sex in the months after delivery. Episiotomies are often recommended if your baby develops a condition known as fetal distress where their heart rate significantly increases or decreases before birth or to widen your vagina so that instruments like forceps or a vent house suction can be used to assist with the birth. If you do have an episiotomy and you haven't had any type of anesthesia or anesthesia is worn off, you'll likely receive an injection of a local anesthetic to numb the tissue. So don't worry about feeling your care provider, making that incision or repairing it after the delivery. There are some things that you can do to try and avoid an episiotomy or tearing. So during late pregnancy, Kegel exercises will help strengthen and elasticize your pelvic floor. And this can decrease your need for an episiotomy and lessen the chance of tearing naturally. You can also choose labor positions like squatting, and those will help speed up the process rather than perhaps laying on your back in a bed. And try not to hold your breath for extended periods and really just follow your body's clues, which means pushing when you feel the urge to push. You will be amazed at the instincts that kick in during labor. Lastly, a warm compress or oil on your perineum may also be helpful. An assisted delivery, sometimes called an instrumental delivery, is when your care provider helps in the birthing process by using instruments like a vent house suction cup or forceps to help deliver your baby. Both a vent house and forceps carry some risks to you and your baby and the method suggested will probably vary depending on the specific circumstances of your birth. A vent house is less likely to cause significant damage to your perineum or vagina, but it tends to be less effective in helping baby born and more likely to leave your baby with temporary swelling on their head. Although it's pretty uncommon, it's also more likely to cause bleeding inside your baby's eye. On the other hand, forceps are more likely to be successful at helping your baby be born, but they are also more likely to cause redness or a slight bruising on the side of your baby's face. They generally also involve an episiotomy or a pretty severe tear or both and can cause some significant damage to your perineum and vagina and can also cause short-term incontinence problems for you. Bottom line, if it can be avoided, it's best to deliver without an assisted delivery. The most major of all interventions is a cesarean birth, which is also commonly referred to as a C-section. This is major surgery, and it allows your baby to be removed via incisions into the abdomen and uterus. This is utilized when there is an urgent threat to the life of the mother or the baby, and in these cases, a cesarean can be a life-saving intervention. Some examples include a mother hemorrhaging or a baby not getting enough oxygen, but the truth is is that most C-sections are not emergencies. Some of the non-emergency reasons for a C-section are prolonged labor, which is commonly referred to as failure to progress, um, a baby in a breach or transverse position, and changes in the baby's heart rate. The international healthcare community has considered the ideal rate for cesarean sections to be between 10 and 15%. When this was first measured in 1965, the national U.S. cesarean birth rate was 4.5%. Do you want to take a guess at what the actual C-section rate is in the U.S. now? In 2014, it was 32.2%. So about one in three mothers are now giving birth by cesarean section, and that has become the nation's most common operating room procedure. That is absolutely insane. As I said, this is major surgery with risks to both you and the baby, and the recovery time is also much longer. There's so much going on during the natural process of labor with a vaginal birth. You and your baby are both getting an insane cocktail of hormones and passage through the birth canal also squeezes fluid out of the baby's lungs. There are countless reasons why you should opt out of a C-section if possible. We will no doubt dive much deeper into this topic in the future. If you would like to lower your risk for a C-section, I urge you to choose a care provider and a place of birth with a low cesarean rate. Research has shown that the presence of a doula can also lower your chance of having a cesarean. The number one thing you can do to avoid a C-section is to make informed decisions. With each medical intervention that you opt into, you are increasing the chances that your baby will be delivered via C-section. There is a ton of things you can do to avoid interventions. If you cannot avoid it or you want to opt into an intervention, you are making an excellent choice to educate yourself on everything involved. Things can move really fast during labor, and the more that you know ahead of time, the better equipped you will be. I do suggest having a birth plan, but let me elaborate on that. It's really a good exercise to have concise notes on what you do and do not want. I would not recommend walking into a hospital with a three-page long list of demands. Your birth plan is really your best case scenario. If all goes well, this is how it should go. Do include anything that is important to you or that you feel especially strong about and make sure that you communicate all of these with your care provider beforehand. This is also a great opportunity for your birth partner to step up and help you get as close to your birth wishes as possible. If you are stuck, on how to craft a birth plan, go to pregnancypodcast.com forward slash birth plan and you can get a copy of my birth plan just so you can get an example of how one could be structured or worded. I sincerely hope this episode has been helpful in educating you about the different interventions. To recap, we talked about IVs, electronic fetal monitoring, induction, epidurals, episiotomies, assisted delivery, and cesarean births. This podcast is intended to be a tool in your toolbox. I really urge you to do your due diligence and look into these more in depth. Only you are going to know what's best for you and your baby and And the more that you know, the better off you will both be. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Pregnancy Podcast today. I hope that you find this episode helpful. As always, you can contact me, Vanessa, at PregnancyPodcast.com. You can find notes and resources for this episode and links to all of the other in-depth shows that I have done on each intervention at pregnancypodcast.com forward slash episode 80. You can find me on Twitter at preg podcast or pregnancy podcast on Facebook and Instagram.